Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2015 AWP conference in Minneapolis. The recording features Marcelo Hernandez Castillo, Patrick Rosal, Joanna Sitt, and Leah Vernon. You will now hear Tanya Hegeman provide introductions. The way I sort of envisioned this happening was that I wanted each of our panelists who are absolutely stunning and amazing in their own right um, to introduce themselves and speak on their experience in an MFA program and also to speak about their experiences because some some of them are are educators as well. And then have a sort of uh, talk back with our audience. We're a little small, so I think I'm going to sort of let it happen organically, and you know, if you guys have questions in between uh, different panelists, maybe we'll have some time for that so that you can address each panelist and what they're, they're saying and what they're bringing to the table. Um, and I'd love to hear from you also, you know, what are some of your strategies when you have students of color in your classrooms? What are some stories that you have encountered? What are questions that you want to know? And I don't want us to feel like, you know, I think sometimes... Uh, we feel like we can't talk about things because it's not our place or that other people should be the voice, but each one of us has a singular voice and a singular, you know, experience, and it's valid. And that's a part of, you know, why this panel is so important to acknowledge that. So, first of all, my name is Tanya Hegeman. Thank you all for coming again, also. I'll start off by talking about my experience in the academy. Um, I have a bachelor's degree from the University of Pittsburgh in poetry. I learned from the amazing Toy Derricott, which was probably, you know, her tutelage was probably the reason why I'm standing here today, the author of four books and, you know, winner of awards, because if I had not had her, I probably would have given up. I probably would not have seen my voice as valuable. Um, And just her presence alone was, you know, bolstering. And she was starting Kaveh Kahneman at that time. So it was a really sort of transformative space in the, you know, poetry, MFA, academic criticism world. Um, University of Pittsburgh, I was the only black woman getting a bachelor's degree, there was one woman of color in the graduate program, and then and we also had one male who had just graduated. So there was just us and Toy. <laughs> and, you know, that experience was important, and she, she allowed me to focus on craft rather than content, um, and she made sure that, you know, I understood that my content was what bolstered my, cla- my craft, but when she invited me to come to Cave Canem, I was incredibly afraid. I was almost mortified because I had never been in a classroom or in a learning experience or in a workshop with all people of color. And that's what's really, you know, what resonated with me was that I was afraid to be able to be myself amongst my own people because I had been only sharing my work with people who, you know, were different. 
And that creates a space of, you know, defense. Um, it also, I, I had a great, you know, sort of group of people in my classes, but it also put me on a margin. And when I was like, faced with coming to the page with other people who were also having, you know, unique experiences as people of color, as writers, it was very fearful because I, I didn't know how they would receive me. The night before I left for Cave Canem, I had a panic attack. I cried my eyes out. My sister was like, I don't understand. This is what you've wanted your whole life. <laughs> you know, why are you crying? But I was so afraid because I was afraid of my own voice in a non-marginalized space. So going to Cave Canem obviously was like absolutely magical. I got to my you know, hero, Kate Russian, who wrote the bridge poem from this bridge called My Back. She was there. I got to knock on her door at 7 a.m. and be like, please come, you know, be poets with me. <laughs> and, you know, I, I was able to not just have mentors, but to just broaden my sense of identity and to solidify my sense of identity as a poet, as an author. Fast forward, um, about five years later, I went to the new school for my MFA. When I got there, I knew exactly what I wanted. I knew I was ready to write a novel. I knew I, you know, what I wanted to do. I had already had a, you know, a very solid background in craft. Uh, but when I got there, the teacher, who was an author, not necessarily, it was his first time being an instructor, he had no writers of color on the reader reading list. And I don't know if you, any of you know this, writer Virginia Hamilton, who is you know, one of the first ch writers of, of young adult and children's literature to ever win uh, a MacArthur. So she's internationally known. She went to the new school, and this guy didn't even know about it. And neither did some of the other people in the program who were running it. They didn't even know. And when I asked my professor about it, I said, you know, you don't, I just, you know, took him aside and I just said, you know, have any writers of color? He said, I didn't know people were interested in diversity. And then he told me I had to bring in books to, you know, talk about it with my classmates. Now, I was paying out of my pocket for this experience, yet I had to teach other people. I had to teach him. And I understand, you know, if he was, you know, not familiar but I think that there are better practices in how you approach these instances, right? I think that if, if, I, if I had been perhaps in his situation, I would have said, well, let me go do some research myself as your instructor. Let me go look and see what I can find. Because, you know, fast forwarding and being a, a teacher and coordinating a creative writing program, you know, I know that it's my job to be the one to, you know, open the door for my students. And as much as they, you know, obviously feed me intellectually and they feed me and they teach me, I'm here to be the leader. And so I think that, you know, that experience truly shaped how I became a teacher. Um, so now I work at Medgarvis College, which is an all-black institution. Not necessarily all-black. We're African-American, Caribbean-American, African, every, everything. People from all over the world. So, you know, our focus in creative writing, or at least my focus as the coordinator of creative writing, is to be able to give them the magic that Toy Derricotte gave me 
as a student because it was very much about the, the conjuring of the word um, in her classes. And that, you know, in itself was very sustaining. But it was also about making sure that my students understood what they would be up against if they did decide to go to an MFA program. And when we talk about MFA programs, we have to be clear that MFAs are a privileged space and generally a white space. And I know all of us have probably seen the articles and read them and have commentary on them. Um, but we have to sort of identify the MFA as a privileged space. That is, is being broken down in many ways in our, you know, sort of post Cave Canem, post Condiman, post, you know, every, all these things, you know, we have a greater awareness, I think, and I think a lot of people are trying to open up their worldview, but not everybody, and it's not mandatory. But if we see the MFA program as a privileged space, then we have to make sure that when we are educating, we're not just trying to uh, feed the rich, Right? We have to make sure that everyone in those spaces is nourished. We have to make sure that each identity is allowed to be as multifaceted as it can be because we are not all one fixed identity, right? And even if I look at a white student, he's not just a white student. He's a person. He's a human with, you know, multiple experiences that I don't understand. And I don't want to shut him out because I do have occasionally white students in my class. And, you know, it's great for me because I'm then challenged in that way to bring them into the conversation and to make sure that they are feeling included. I wrote an article recently for the Children's Book Council about, and it's called uh, Diversity Versus Inclusion. I spoke about how inclusion, I believe, is the future of diversity. I believe that diversity is a, you know, esoteric sort of uh, thought process. It's great on paper, but, you know, we can have a diverse classroom. There can be uh, many colors of people, but if only one, you know, type of person is catered to or identified as important, then what's the point? We have to include everyone. We as teachers have to work hard at that because once we start looking at our students as a conglomerate, then they are robots and we are robots. Creative writing sometimes can be a little bit of a triage practice. You can sort of, you know, get into a space where, you know, you're dealing with people's very personal issues, their, you know, very deep-seated um, problems or um, you know, a multitude of things. And if we are looking at it from this emergency room sort of, like we're just trying to fix, you know, or attend to certain aspects of people, then we're, we're not being creative, and we're creative writers. So I just wanted to read a quick quote. I've been reading a identity-based uh, English language learner's um, reader, um, identity-focused English language um, programs. And it says, if we imagine each of our students as having just one true fixed identity, then we are unlikely to pay much attention to the ways in which classroom, school, community, and other social cultural contexts shape who students are in our classrooms. We might conclude, for instance, that a student lacks motivation simply because of her own internal attitudes, applying deficit thinking to fail to notice how cultural expectations 
have shaped how that student came to see herself at school. And the MFA process is, you know, just as much about the writing of the craft as it is about creating an identity and putting it on the page. It is about being, taking risks. It's about being fearless. And I think that if we approach um, students of color as, you know, specialized, you know, marginalized, uh, exoticized people, then we're not doing our job and we're not servicing them for all of their needs. So I'm going to, who should we start with? Leah, you want to go first? Our little baby? <laughs> Patrick will go first. So he's going to introduce himself and talk a little bit about his um, experience, and we can pause for questions after he's finished speaking. Thank you. Morning. You know, the thing that being a writer has taught me the best and most thoroughly is how to teach myself. And what that means is that there's a poetics to nearly everything I do. And I imagine all those poetics belong to one another. They move in tandem. I write to figure shit out. I teach to figure shit out. I play piano or guitar. I learn congas so I can figure out my trouble more accurately, I do these things so I can stay inside my trouble long enough that it becomes bearable, maybe even danceable. When Rigoberto Gonzalez came last summer to our writers' conference, he said, despite feeling somewhat rootless or without a home, as a writer, language was his home. This is important to remember if you're a writer about to enter graduate school and or planned on entering academia. Your home institution is not your home. Language is your home. My, my poetics requires me to look back, to mind memory, to figure out what my parents, immigrants from the Philippines, did to make life that wasn't, make a life that wasn't prescribed or planned for them, or even likely for that matter. And that it isn't very different from the way I think about thriving in an MFA program. So I'll tell you a little bit about my folks. My father is an ex-Catholic priest. My mother was a dietitian. They met and fell in love in Chicago. This is what I tell myself. If you think academia is a tyrannical system of institutions, try being the son of an ordained Catholic pre-Vatican II theologian. Or try being the priest himself. Try being the woman he loves. Try to mend the chasm between your faith, the very thing that is supposed to save you, and your desire to be with the person you love in a strange country, one of the few who speaks your native tongue and who knows the roads between your barrios. Imagine feeling like you have to choose between salvation and love. Imagine being that alone. So one of the things I ask myself is, what was that era like? What did my parents do to make it through? And what can I learn from what they did? You're talking about the early 60s. My mom arrived actually in 1958, the same year that Sugar Ray Robinson would win his last belt in Chicago, and my dad, 1962. A whole narcissistic generation of Americans is going to reject the Cleaver family's pearls and forget Senator McCarthy and take acid. They're going to find an excuse to grow their hair long and roll around naked in the grass, which for the record I've never done, but sounds like a ton of fun. And here were two Filipinos, ardent Catholics, one a priest, 
in the American Midwest. We're talking about radical transformations of not just the personal and political self, but the ontological self. They were trying to put meals on the table, and they were trying to save their lives. If nothing else, my parents' story gives me a concrete example of strategies of survival that we often talk about in the abstract. So let me be more specific. In terms of my parents' courtship, there were sanctioned spaces and unsanctioned spaces. There were places, formal and informal, gatherings, weddings, that were sanctioned. That is, they were allowed to be in the same space. But there were rules that restricted what they could do and say. So they had to find other places where it was safe to be with one another, to say things to one another, to love and argue. They had to make those places themselves, or more accurately, they had to reinvent already existing spaces. My mom snuck my dad into her room. Mostly they hid in the public parks of Chicago at night after hours. It makes me think of June Jordan's The Things I Do in the Dark. You can see that the metaphors abound here. Official space and unsanctioned space, desire, argument, love. So while my story is most probably unlike anybody, anybody else's story in this room, the story of my story is not dissimilar to perhaps the vast majority of people of color. Embedded in the narratives of our parents or ancestors, if you're lucky enough to be able to draw from them, are lessons about how to live despite all the very powerful messages which insist that the poems, stories, gatherings, solitudes we people of color live for is silly, redundant, unsophisticated, and sometimes uncivilized. I don't have a methodology exactly. I have questions, which is the method of the method of my madness. Mining your memory, mining your past, is a way of confronting, confronting the treacheries of a single story. You're doing this for yourself, but you're also doing this so you have something to pass on to those who come after you. So those are my prepared comments, but I also wanted to respond to a couple of things that, that, um, that Tanya said, which, were, which is amazing. And I, I also wanted to say something about the first time, and it's sort of when you said, when we talked about Kaveh Khan, I felt this like really deep emotion. I was really moved because I remembered the first time that I was in a room full of Asian American writers. And I was the one standing in front of the room, you know. And it was a very similar experience to think that I had gone 35 years. I already published my books and not once been able to look in a room full of people who loved language and writing, who looked kind of like me. White folks probably want to know, what happens? What happens in Cave Kanem and Kandemundo and, and, and Kundiman that's so special? A lot. And it, it's the very thing that we have a hard time putting into language. We're all writers. That liminal space between what we can actually articulate in words and the thing that we can't articulate in words, that's the experience that people of color find when they're in the company of one another. It's hard for us to convey that, right? But it's real. It's really, really real. And I think the, other, the only other thing that I wanted to say, if this allegory of mine wasn't clear, was that 
our pedagogies and the way that we teach writing in MFA programs largely comes from white traditions. You are bringing in now some faculty and increasingly more students into graduate writing programs. What does that mean? That means all of us have modes of speech and storytelling and gathering and lying and preaching that are not yet sanctioned by the official institution. Those modes have to be honored too. And so when white folks sort of ask, well, what can I do? It's like, open your mind to other possibilities of language. Just open your mind to the possibility that everybody in your room brings in modes of speech and storytelling that can transform the way that we think about literature. That's what we all can do. Thank you. anyone have any questions for Patrick they'd like to ask right now? Okay, we'll move on to Marcelo. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Um, thank you so much, Tanya, for organizing this. Um, it's such a great space uh, to speak about some of the things that writers of color go through in academic programs, I mean, academia in general, in AWP. Um, you know, it's a testament to how many uh, panels of this nature there are at AWP, and I was just at one yesterday. And I do think that that we need to pay more attention. Um, so I just I wanted to hit a few points that I wanted to touch on. Uh, but first of all, I wanted to talk maybe a little bit about myself um, very briefly. Uh, my family crossed the border in 1993, um, undocumented, and have been undocumented since then, so for 21 years. Uh, and my father and mother have been coming back and forth uh, in the States for my father at least since seven, the, the late 70s, my mother uh, since the 80s. And it's always been a, 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 the immigrant struggle, you know, finding the jobs that no one else would want to take, um, field work, um, canneries. Um, my mom never worked in restaurants, but it's mostly um, agriculture. So that's the kind of family that I grew up into and a kind of family that never spoke about on our, our undocumented status because uh, that was never allowed. You're never allowed to talk about that. You're never allowed to say mention that to anybody. And um, there's a lot of other issues that go along with that. And when it comes to school, it's a big hurdle. Uh, before DACA passed, it was nearly impossible. You know, there were case, there was a lot of people who were undocumented going to school, but you basically had to pay for all of it by yourself, um, which with um, increasing tuition rates was just impossible. You can't take out a loan. You can't apply for financial aid. So um, it was very difficult. I went to um, uh, community college uh, because that's all I could afford. When it was time to transfer, because I knew I wanted to go to a four-year, I transferred to the cheapest, closest state school that I could find where I could still live at home and commute back and forth um, and work full-time to pay it off. So um, I graduated from Sacramento State, and since high school, I was interested in poetry. I was interested, um, not like a, my, my experience with it wasn't, at first at least, something that needed to, I, that I needed to go to in order to like save me or anything. It was more of, I want to prove that I have the chops, that I can speak your language, that I can do it better than you. I applied to two MFA programs, and uh, I got into Michigan, um, 
and I actually had no idea how I was going to do it because I don't know if they were going to accept me uh, with my undocumented status, how I was going to pay for it or whatnot. But um, I just went, you know, where I thought they would be cool with it, where they would have some kind of funding, um, which they did and they didn't. Had DACA not passed right at that exact moment, I would have had to defer until I adjusted my status. So the fact that DACA passed, everybody know what DACA is? Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which is like a, a simplified version of the DREAM Act given to students. So because it passed, I was able to stay and teach for um, the remainder of my program and then continue on to my third-year fellowship. But that's basically where, where, where I'm coming from. And I, up to that point, I had never been in a space with only Latinos um, because... Unfortunately, my, under, my undergrad experience, we read nothing but straight, white, male poets. Dead. Straight, well, dead poets. You know? Exclusively. I think the only, the first writer of color that we read in that class was Yusuf Komunyaka, who, you know, I live for. But it wasn't until I entered the space of Canto Mundo that... Um, that I had that first experience of being in a, in, in a space with writers of color. And that's really important. So I wanted to um, talk about uh, just three points. Most of, some of them admitted like, what it has to do with like, the, the institution of, of academia and then um, some, not solutions, but points to address. So um, some of the obstacles that I've noticed um, after finishing grad school, me and um, my friend who was in the audience, Derek, at University of Michigan, we started a racial diversity initiative because we saw there was absolutely no diversity. I mean, speaking about the reading list, there were, in the poetry reading, reading list, there was one woman of color. And the second year, they had to replace that woman of color with another woman of color because, I mean, you just can't have two women of color in the same reading list. <laughs> they had to replace Gwendolyn Brooks with Lucille Clifton because, my God, you can't have them both. Um, and they replaced James Baldwin with um, Richard Wright in the following year. So there's a few obstacles that, that, that begin. First of all, um, applicant pools for MFA programs in and of themselves aren't diverse enough. Um, I think uh, the statistics that I, have, that I got from Michigan is it's about 10 to 15% every year. You know, so how do we reach young students, writers of color in undergraduate programs, who graduate school is not the norm, but it's the exception, for me, it was the exception. I, nobody in my family has ever gone to college. So I didn't have any kinds of resources or even uh, people to go to because I still didn't have that community in undergrad. I didn't have Canto Mundo. I didn't have people who I know in the, in, in, in the poetry world. So um, uh, how do we increase those, those, those numbers? And one of, those things, one of the things that happened to me was I was just fortunate enough that um, a friend, of, a good friend of mine now, Eduardo Corral, um, just reached out to me on Facebook and said, hey, you're a Latino poet. Uh, what are you doing? What, what are you thinking about? And he's the one who really guided me and told me about MFA programs and, and read my sample and whatnot. So um, it's just reaching out first and foremost to, to those, those students or those individuals who um, – aren't going to have those kinds of resources, who don't, aren't expected to even. Um, then even then, you know, in a lot of programs, you know, the slush pile readers is, is another thing. Like, if your slush pile readers are all um, straight white males, like, you're not going to get a lot of diversity to begin with. So those are some of the things that we addressed um, in my program. 
um, including like recruitment efforts during like um, we have a welcome weekend where we just want one space for writers of color to meet just with current and perspective. That didn't happen. There was a lot of um, bureaucracy. But it's like that in academia. And I wanted to mention one thing is that there's this, it's called, I've read it, it's called white fragility, that we as writers of color are always catering to make white people comfortable in speaking about race and speaking about diversity and speaking about um, anything that will benefit us, which is why speaking about race is almost a taboo in workshops. It's almost as if we're writing in a vacuum and our, our, work, our work exists in a vacuum. They're trying to say that you can't speak about craft and race at the same time, which is ridiculous because even if you're white, whiteness is a race. Right. You're, writing, you're writing a white experience. Right. You're writing a white experience. You're writing a white experience. So this idea of white comfort is prevalent in academia, and it's something that I butted against every single time. I mean, since day one, um, is that the priority is white comfort, whereas what if I don't want to make white people comfortable, you know? In regards to teaching, um, I guess as a teacher and as a, uh, as a teacher of color, teaching to a mostly white students it can be sometimes very difficult, but I wanted them to know that discomfort is okay, that the end goal isn't to get rid of discomfort. The end goal might be discomfort, to understand your own privilege. Um, so that, as, as a teacher, that's, that's um, one of the things that I wanted to mention. And I guess going forward with maybe solutions or thoughts for it, I've mentioned... Uh, Race is seen as a taboo in, in class, in writing workshops, in programs in general. But like I said, we're not writing in a vacuum. And I also wanted to mention this thing about um, the norm, like the default, um, which I re- uh, I've been reading in some articles that deal with that, is that whenever we're writing or reading, I mean, I'm, uh, I, I might be guilty, I'm, I'm guilty of it myself at times, is when you're reading, the person in your head who you're reading, with, if race isn't mentioned, it's always automatically assumed to be white. So there are different ways that I think in academia we can um, disrupt these things and make things uncomfortable. And that's, that's part of it, is eliminating this idea of the default, um, eliminating this, this need to always want to make people comfortable when talking about race. It's not always comfortable. Um, so those are the things that, you know, coming into grad pro- grad, a grad program, I was dealing with. And for those of you in the audience considering grad school now, I would love to talk to you afterwards um, because I want to reach out to people. I want to I want to provide any kind of resources that I have. Uh, you know how to apply to grad school, how to write your letters of rec, um, how to uh, write your statement, and, and so on and so forth. Because academia reproduces the same power dynamics of race. Um, as anywhere else, as a coffee shop, as um, politics, uh, it reproduces it. You know, um, there are different masks that racism take on. Nobody wants to be called a racism, but at the same time, people benefit from racist institutionalized racism. But also, at the same time, like I said, nobody wants to be called a racist, but we're all living in the system. And academia is no different. I mean, I genuinely, very naively thought that it would be different, but it's not. I think mostly um, faculty and administration 
almost tend to not want to believe you. Like, you must be making this up. You know, there's no way that, th- that this is going on. Um, and it's that same tendency of, uh, of an institution, of, a, uh, of authority, to not give credit or not uh, believe the experiences that I'm going through, that my friends are going through, you know, um, not validate those experiences, which are valid. So I will uh, end just with, with saying, you know, it's really important to find your group of people that you can talk these things about. And um, I th- think that's all that I had to say about that. If, um, if, you, if you guys have any questions, yeah. Deafening silence. And so I wondered how you, if you have experienced that or how you sort of make these spaces where people definitely feel that discomfort that you're yeah. talking about yeah. um, productive. Because I yeah. often feel like I, not only am I feeling marginalized because I'm the token, I'm the only one there, but right. also because I'm not getting the same sort of um, academic right. Yeah, and silence is one of those ways in which that that, that recreates those those um, that reproduces those dynamics of power and race outside of the outside of the workshop. It reproduces it, and if you're not talking about it, it's just as bad, almost as bad as um, somebody saying a hostile um, comment or anything like that. That happens a lot, and we want to have a, um, a writing race uh, interest group in which we talk about. To, 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 we talk about specifically. We're going to talk about specifically about that, and it's really difficult because in my, I guess in my cohort we had, it was the most diverse itself, not being that diverse, but it's the most diverse, um, you know, in comparison. Um, so we were able to establish a space in which we can invite everybody and talk about it. But I mean, in the actual workshop, you know, if you're just confronted with that with that silence again, time and time again, it, it's just numbing. You know, it's it, you know. It, it can, it, it, can, it can be disastrous for a writer, um, and it can lead you to think that. Um, I often talk to my students about, and in fact, I require my students to have questions prepared when they are going into workshop so that when there is that silence, you provide the voice. You know what you need to hear or what, you, what questions you need to ask and what needs to be addressed. And so you have to empower yourself by constructing. You have to, te- and, and it's terrible to say, I hate saying this, but you often have to teach them how to understand you. And, you know, and that might not be your place, and you might feel a little confused about that. But see your work as, you know, you know like you, you would ask questions of other people. Have them ask, you know, have them answer specific questions because that's how that's the only way to eradicate silence is by using your own voice. I mean, 
there's three things that you I, I read this really you hit, there's three things that you can do to, to I mean if they're if they're if they're living is buy their work share it with others you know but going to to professors and, and, and telling them you know asking them very frankly why is there only this many people of color on your reading list you know asking those kinds of questions I mean you'd be surprised where people would say you know, people have the luxury and the privilege of saying, gee, I've never thought of that. <laughs> you know, how comfortable <laughs> um, going to that, to, to, to them and, t- and, and, and telling them, you know, why? Why, why, is, why is there, on, there why is a split dynamic? Why is there a dichotomy of, between just black and white? And I guess I mean, if, you do, if you guys want to talk to that. Well, I mean, for myself, I feel like, because um, I also am a literary writer, and in my MFA space, I, mean, I write about, you know, mostly black girls in rural settings in, like, 1848. Nobody wants to hear that, really. And that's what people tell me. People have told me that all the time. And I'll see, you know, like, my colleagues who are writing, you know, solely urban fiction, commercial fiction, they're bought and sold, you know, very rapidly and easily. But, you know, you have to maintain your conviction in what literature is. Mm-hmm. Like, you cannot rely on Claude McKay alone to be your nourishment in poetry, you mm-hmm. know? And you have to also be the one to go out and buy Patrick's books and to go see Marcelo, you know, when he is doing these readings and to invite your, just exactly what he said, to invite your teachers, invite your other students. And I had to speak to, after I spoke to my professor about diversity, I then went to the chair of the department and said, I want to put together a celebration of multicultural, you know, children's literature. And that was how I met my agent, and that was how I sold my first books in my first year of school. Because, and I think this is something that, that happens a lot, we, I think, as writers of color, become defensive, and we've been taught to use that defense as in it's possible to use that as empowerment. You know what I'm saying? And there are ways to use it so that it bogs you down, and there are ways to use it so that it empowers you. And I went and found all of these diverse writers who I hadn't even heard of, and I had to shame myself for not knowing these people. So, you know, when you are in that space, you cannot think of the MFA as your, as Patrick was saying, as your home. Language, literature is your home. You build that house. So wherever it is that you go, you have to be very clear that you will be building your house from scratch. And if you embrace that and then let it be an empowering thing, then you, know, you will succeed in any MFA program, no matter where you are. Thanks, guys. Thank oh, you, Marcelo. Oh, one more question. I have a question sort of related to that, and I guess I feel kind of weird asking. Don't. Yeah, you just got to, you have to be bold. It's like, you know, and this is what my, I'm a very introverted person, you know, generally I'm very shy. And to ask this person 
you know, that. And then to open myself up to the repercussions of that, he suddenly started using the word niggardly all the time. And I was like, seriously? You know, and he was like, but it's just a word. And I was like, mm, you know. But I had, to, I had to deal with that because if you're going to approach any publisher, you're also going to come across mainly white people who don't have any clue. Um, I was speaking to a friend who was in a writing, a reading workshop with editors and agents. It was an entirely white group, and my friend is white. And when they spoke about, you know, they did not want to, like, like Marcella was saying, they didn't want to talk about race at all. They said, you know, content and race, we just want to talk about, you know, the craft. But that's like, you know, looking at a bridge and only wanting to know how many screws are used to build it. You know, that's not the bridge. We have to be willing to take that risk because in order to be published, in order to do, you know, what you want to do, what you're there to do, you got to go get it, you know. And unfortunately, that's the, you know, sort of problem here is that students of color, queer students, religiously, you know, minority students, we have to work harder, you know. And we've heard this so often, and a lot of times writing is the space where we go to to not feel that, but you have to understand that these are just people. And, you know, if you approach them in an angry way, you're going to get that anger back. If you approach them with question in an open sort of, sort of way, whatever it is they come back with, you can always say that you did your best. And, you know, I, I know that that's not like, you know, exactly you know, the, an answer for you. But I do really think that you have to be, you know, you got to, you know, get those brass ovaries shined up and, you know, ask the questions you need answered. Because he's not going to, you know, he's not going to know what you need. It's like in a relationship. You have to tell people what you need in order to get what you want. So, you know, I really want this space to be an empowering space. You know, never let people silence you. Never, you know, think your questions are not valuable. Um, and, you know, if you are met with, um, you know, with defense, then you take it to the next level. You can talk to the chair. And if that chair doesn't, you know, listen to you, you take it to the provost. And if those people are not interested, then you, really, you know that the institution itself is the problem. And then I say go to the news. But, um, you, know, you know, like you have to, in a way, shame people into, you know, recognizing who you are. Shame them, it, not in a way to, to, you know, call them out. I mean, obviously, you probably want to take that person to the side after class. But, you know, you have to say, I need this, and I need you to understand what I need. And I need you to, because I am paying for you to teach me. So this is what I need out of my, for my education. Why don't we, why don't we hold, and I'm sorry to do this, but why don't we hold off because um, let's let, uh, we've, we've done, not got a whole lot of time let's left, so let's let Joanna speak, um, and then Leah Vernon, so Joanna, sit. Hi, everyone. Thank you. I'm going to make mine short and sweet, I think. And um, I'm actually um, coming after this conversation, I think it's a good kind of transition uh, in terms of um, the discussion between race and craft. And so I think that what I'll do is I'll start with an anecdote. Uh, when I was in my MFA program at Brooklyn College, I studied with Allen Ginsberg and Susan Schaefer. 
And uh, they have the two of them have very different styles, and I was the only Asian American in that uh, program, uh, in the poetry program. And Alan, so I had a, a two completely different approaches to my work. And Alan would uh, talk about the economy of language. And he was very concerned with my overuse of articles and prepositions. Uh, but he never talked about the content of my work. You know, so I went on, I think my first year, kind of, you know, reading other people. And in my class, mostly they were, they were, there was me, and then there was Paul Beatty. I don't know if you know him, but he was the only African-American there uh, in poetry as well. So, you know, the two of us were kind of like token people. And... Um, and so one day, um, I, when it was, it was my turn to do a poem, I had been working on this poem called Sidville. So my last name is Sid, and, you know, it's sort of like my little, you know, f- funny way of, like, doing some uh, memory things, you know, uh, stories that my mother uh, told me over the years. And so, uh, you know, I brought it to Alan, and he took away all the thes and the ofs and, you know, and all of that. And then I, t- I took it to the other workshop. And so I'm going to just read a poem. Well, the poem is kind of long because there are many different stories. So I'm going to just read a little segment of it uh, in the interest of time and tell you what happened after. Uh, this is a third one. It's called Sidville, and uh, this is the third story. It wasn't famine so much as war, although I've heard they're the same. When she was born, her father said she was the moon that fell from the sky and hired two maids and a wet nurse just for her. We'd watch her play in the fields when we were tending the cows and were jealous of her fine silks and her little slippers. After he died, his second wife allowed her one meal a day. One night, she stole a cake from the hidden jar. The stepmother counted the cakes and smashed her fingers with a hammer. So these are kind of like the same, not, not the same story, but, you know, sort of the same trajectory. And so when I read the poem, everybody in my class, they clapped and they said, more, more, more. And I didn't know at that time that they really wanted more stories, And so I was kind of like the Amy Tan of my class. (laughs) It took me a long time. And so so I went home because, you know, uh, I've never been in an MFA program before. I've never had poetry workshops before. And so when I went home and I wrote all these, you know, memoir pieces, you know, thinking that, oh, this is, you know, what they like. And this is what makes me special. And I did that for a while. And I realized that that some of the stories I was not really, if they weren't good. I mean, they were good stories, but they were not good on the page, on the line. The lines were bad. And I start to realize that much later. And then, so it took me a long time. It, it gave me, you know, that, that reaction gave me such a puerile sense of pride that I just continued for a long time, forgetting myself and forgetting my, my mission, you know, and Dorothy Wang, you know, in, Asia, uh, in her book, Asian American Thinking is Presence, uh, she says that the occlusion or ignoring of race by critics and poets is equally as disturbing as the fetishization of racial and ethnic content and identity. You know, 
in my workshop experience, it's been tied up with the ladder. And it took a long time for me, you know, to realize that and to work around to the former. And then, then it took me even longer to create a synthesis of both things and to recognize that you can occupy two spaces at once. So now that I'm teaching in, at Meg Revers with Tanya, the advice I would give to my poetry students is that be aware of what your readers are reading into your writing, although you don't necessarily do anything about it. That Know that how other people read your work reveals as much about them as you, the poet. And that be sure that you are not undermining your own poetic integrity by telling stories that others want to hear but you not, might not be ready to, to write or to tell. And be sure to always work towards occupying two spaces at once, mastery of your prosody and who you are. And that's nationally, racially, sexually, linguistically, religiously. And be sure to claim your story before you allow others to own it. Because at the end, the fetishization of your stories and the exoticization of your stories um, become their property and become an act of appropriation. And so, and that's okay. I mean, you know, you put it out there, that, then you're offering it, and that's okay. But I do think that you have to own it in the way that, that you want to put it out there uh, before you allow that to happen and not let other people define it and then give it back to you, and then you lose control of who you are. So, um, and that's, um, you know, and, that, and that's my experience, and, you know, and this is what I do to help my students in terms of how they write and how they approach their work. Thank you. We're going to hold off from questions and let Leah speak. This is Leah Vernon. Um, so. Good morning, everybody. As everyone was talking, I was just like looking at everybody in the audience. Thank you for coming out, number one. I know it's early. And number two, um, I don't think I've ever been in a room where there was so much diversity. Usually it's one type of person in the room, so that's nice. That's really nice. I'm gonna start off with um, like a short bio, well not a short, a little bio. Um, I think it's, it's important that you understand how I got to the MFA program before I start to actually talk about that. Um, so I am a fashion blogger, fashion and style blogger, um, but before that, I was a writer. Well, am a writer now. So basically, I uh, love young adult dystopia novels, light fantasy novels, sci-fi, stuff like that. That's what I read. I also teach like foreign children in Yemen, Bangladesh, India. So um, that's kind of like what I teach. So basically, um, this is my little story before I start. Okay, so um, growing up, basically, I was obsessed with young adult literature, Authors like C.S. Lewis and R.L. Stein, J.K. Rowling, um, those are the books that I grow, grew up reading. All those people that I just named were white, <laughs> so these are the books that I grew up reading. I never knew that there were African-American writers. That just, in my world, it didn't exist, which is, 
at the time, I didn't know the implications of it. Now, looking back on it, I definitely can see that that's a problem for an African-American girl to not know that these books exist. I'm sure they did, but it wasn't in abundance in the library, because that's where I got my books from. The library, what's the other place? Walden Books. These are the places I frequented that wasn't what was in the young adult section. You know, there was, like, white authors. So one day I was like, you know, let me just write a story and just, like, authors that I love write kind of like sort of how they were writing. So I did it. So I wrote my little first book at seven years old. Well, it wasn't a book. It was, like, four pages. It was called The Prince and the Princess, (laughs) which I sent to the Reading Rainbow Contest. Didn't win, but it was my first dose of, you know, writing my little book. So basically as I grew up, I basically did a lot of – I did a little poetry, mostly short stories, like young adult stuff. Uh, I did that, so um, I was homeschooled. I graduated at 16, and I went straight to college after that. So when I was 17, I was like, you know what? I'm going to actually write a book because I want to be a a novelist. I don't really want to do, like, the whole school thing. I'm going to write a book. So during my business classes, I would write my book. It was so stupid. Uh, (laughs) It was so embarrassing. I'm not even going to tell you what it was about. Super embarrassing. Okay, it was a plus-size superhero. So... (laughs) So I wrote this book, and as soon as I finished it, I sent it off to the agents in New York. Like, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get I'm going to be top. I'm going to be up there. So I sent it out. Some people, some agents actually wanted to see, you know, the, the whole manuscript. Sent it out. She sent me the letter back saying that it wasn't polished enough. I'm like, what? This is a best-selling novel. Like, what are you talking about? I'm 17. I'm a genius. So basically, she sent it back, and it was like, no. All the, all the rejection letters piled up. And I'm like, I don't think this is for me. And I was like, you know, I looked at, the, like, the people that I enjoyed reading, and I'm like, none of them look like me. None of them, none of them are me. So basically, who are you to do it? So that's what I stopped writing for, like, maybe, yeah, my, throughout college, I stopped writing. So from 17, 18, 19, 20, graduated at 20, I stopped writing to about 21. So there's, like, a four- or five-year gap where I never wrote a thing. So basically, after that, I started questioning what was going on. You know how you're in your early 20s and you start questioning life, that yada, yada, yada. So basically, it was a question of where do I go from here after I graduated. Um, worked a bullcrap job in the business industry, hated it. It's just it's too cutthroat for me. I'm not that type of person. Um, I'm already antisocial. So I'm like, this is definitely not for me. Quit that job. So then deep depression, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what? So basically this depression took me into what do you really want to do with your life? Like, what have you always loved to do? And I'm like, writing. So I think I was like 22 when I wrote my second book. And this time I edited it. I did edit it this time. Instead of sending it off to agents without editing. So I did that. Um, again, it was denied or rejected. I got some interest, but they were all rejected. I'm like, okay, this is not cool. I'm like, okay, keep trying, keep trying. So I ordered all these craft books, yada, yada. Um, got into some online uh, workshops. Third book done. Again, rejected. I'm like, this is a problem for me. I'm not quite sure, like, why this is happening to me. Like, in my head, I see these, these visions and these dreams, but it's not happening for me. So that's where the MA came from. Um, I took a couple creative writing classes. One of my teachers, he was very eclectic, a little angry in class, but I enjoyed the fact that he had an MFA and that he was teaching and he was writing on the side. He did, he did like screen, uh, I think he did like plays and stuff like that. He also wrote like short fiction. So I'm like, um, what degree do you have? He's like, oh, I have an MFA from Goddard College. I'm like, Goddard, hmm, that's interesting. I'm like, how long did it take to get this? And I'll ask him out the questions. 
He's like, yeah, I would definitely write you a, re- a recommendation letter to get in the, you know, to Goddard College for the MFA program. So I'm like, okay, cool. So basically I um, did some research for some other um, MF, uh, MA programs. So basically there was three. There was Wilkes University, Goddard College, and a third one. So the, ho- the entire day I'm calling these colleges and trying to see, like, you know, which one will fit me. You know, I'm from, I'm, I live in Michigan, and these are all out of state, um, which was also scary. It's another story. Um, I called two of the colleges, Goddard and the other college. They did not return my phone call. They did not call me back. Uh, Wilkes, she did answer the phone. I don't know who I spoke to. I don't know who it was. But she was so, like, welcoming over the phone. And she, I'm, I had, like, a, like, I'm very thorough and very, like, direct. And I asked her, like, a thousand questions. She still on the phone with me for at least an hour. I asked her these questions. The last question I had, because it's in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania. I'm from Detroit. I have no idea where that is or where it was. I asked her, I'm like, okay, so this is Wilkesbury. What's the diversity like here? She's like, this is what she did. I'm going to tell you the truth. There's diversity, but not that kind. <laughs> I'm like, please tell me more. <laughs> and she's like, well, I mean, we have people from all different walks of life, but not like, you know, color diversity. I said, thank you for telling me the truth, because this is what I need to know coming to a situation that I don't know anything about. I mean, I've been in classes for the white people and stuff like that already, so I know like how, it ro- how they roll. But, um, <laughs> and, you know, African Americans, I've been in all, uh, with Middle Easterns, I've been in with all different types of people, but just let me know up front. So I, um, they accepted me, shockingly, don't know why. They accepted me, and then um, I went there, and my cohort, which is some of them are sitting up there, or a couple of them, it was like a class full of white people. Like, all of them were white. And I'm like, I walked in like, oh, oh, retreat to back. Like, I was afraid, like, initially, and that was my own reverse racism, is that I felt like they were not going to accept me for whatever reason. Um, so it was I, was, I was intimidated by them. So I was like, they're not going to understand what I'm writing, yada, yada, yada. They're, not, they're just not going to get it. Um, so I was very withdrawn for the first, you know, I was, you know, I would say like, hi or whatever. But it was, I was very withdrawn, which is my own fault, because I missed out on some great people in the class. So what I would say about the MA program, and the M, I'm currently in the MFA program now. I should be getting it in June. I have my MA already in fiction. Um, I finished my thesis. So... Basically, what I would say about the MA program and the MFA program at Wilkes, and I don't know about the other schools, that's all I went to, but I love the fact that they're very cool. You know what I mean? It's like, I know Wilkes is really cool. Like, you would think, I mean, the majority are Caucasians, which I definitely think that it needs to be, you know, up in diversity in that area, and also teachers, too. I feel like there needs to be more teachers of diversity because a lot of students of color, they, they need that to see this mixture. They don't need to see just one type of person while they're in, in the um, academic field um, or academia. But so basically, um, I wrote my thesis with Taylor Politis. And another thing about the program is that you get paired up with a mentor, which I absolutely, this is what I needed. Like, my writing has gone from, I thought I was a genius, I was not. It going from, like, here to, like, up here, like, in, like, a nanosecond. He's taught me so much. To be paired with somebody who knows how to polish a novel, who's been published, it's, I would have paid a million dollars for this experience. That's how serious it is. Like, I would have paid way more than I already paid. And that's coming a lot for me because I'm a very frugal shopper. <laughs> so, yeah, so basically um, my novel deals with reverse racism um, in this dystopian world. And, of course, it's a young adult. So it's really, it's kind of risque. It's really gritty. And 
I brought it to some of my cohorts and my my mentor, who was also Caucasian. I'm like, does this offend you, the reverse racism thing where black people are over white people and they're, like, doing bad things to them? Like, is that racist? And he's like, Leah, let me tell you something. Whatever you want to write, you write it. Don't worry about what people think about the situation. If this is what you want to write, write the damn story. Say, thank you so much. <laughs> so um, it's really cool to have someone that, and, and my mentor, he, he is white, but he, he transcends the race, I think. He, he transcends it. And I think a lot of mentors and teachers should transcend it. Let's not make it really, we should, we should focus on our differences because that that's what makes it special. But at the same time, be able to kind of transcend race. Write a great character. How about that? Just, just write a great character with a great setting and an awesome plot line that intertwines in itself. So yeah, I had some great experience there. Um, what I've learned from the MA MFA program is to open my mind to other people and not to partake in something that you don't like. So basically racism is not cool, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, you see yourself being a reverse racist almost because you walk into the room and you see all of these people and they don't look like you. And you're like, well, they don't like me because I'm black or they don't like me because I'm Muslim. And it's like, that's definitely preconceived notions, all type of thoughts like you just don't need to have because it's toxic really and it just didn't help. So um, that's what I would say going into an MFA program, whether it's diverse or not diverse, is to have an open mind and not to always think people are thinking bad of you and your writing. So for teaching, I would say to, if you are a teacher and you have a either diverse or non-diverse class, I would say definitely be open, and I think everyone come, kind of tie this in, is to be open to your students. Um, I teach students from all type of Middle Eastern countries, and that's by far the hardest <laughs> to me to teach because they have religion and culture mixed together, and they're um, the ones I teach are a little hardcore. I mean, they wear all black. They wear the face coverings. So you have to really tread, you know, the tread a thin line sometimes. You can't, you can't bring a lot of American culture into the teaching, so, which is different for me because that's what I do. So you definitely have to be – you have to adapt to a situation – because um, none of your classes and none of your children are going to be the same. Look at them individually, whether you're teaching adults or children. Look at them individually and be open to different things. Even if you're uncomfortable, like I think someone said, get comfortable. That's it. So thank you all for coming. Thank you, Patrick, Marcelo, Joanna, and Leah. I want to leave you with a quick uh, workshop experience uh, that you might want to try in your own classrooms or in your own writing. Try writing about a personal experience in second person. So it's, you went to the bank, you were robbed, you know, something like that. And then have yourself paired up with someone else, switch stories, and then you rewrite the story in first person. Then the students have to read those stories aloud. It helps to embody different identities. It helps to widen perspectives. And it's also a great just craft tool. So I just wanted to leave you with that. Thank you. You've been an excellent audience. Thank you. And we'll kind of all migrate outside if there's questions or anything like that for us. So thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org. Thank you.